We're beginning a, a short series, in other words, multiple parts. We'll start today and then we'll continue over the next couple of weeks with a series called Two Weeks to Live. Two Weeks to Live. What Jesus' final 14 days teach us about life. You see, Jesus knew something about his life that you and I don't know about ours. Now, on your paper in front of you, on your notes, if you have a pen with you, can I encourage you to do something? I want you to write, this is, this is really difficult, okay? So just take some thinking. I want you to write your first name. Your actual first name, not the name you wish your parents would have named you. I found out the other day, and this was very disturbing. My mom said, you know, I, I just had a curiosity, you know, when, you know, back in the day, you know, my mom didn't know when I was born, this was back in the ancient days, whether I was going to be, a, you know, didn't know if she was having a boy or a girl. She just got surprised. And so, you know, she had to have a name picked out if I was a boy, a name picked out if I was a girl. Well, I know what the boy's name was. I got it. The girl's name, I said, well, what would you have named me if I was a girl? She said, well, we were going to name you Hillary. I have never been more glad that I came out a man. Hillary. I was like, I don't, Hillary. Like, I don't, I don't know that I want to be Hillary. But I was, I was named Philip. So I want you to write your first name. I want you to write your last name. I want you to write the date of your birth. You don't have to show anybody else. Jesus is watching. Because these are kind of the things that go in the headstone of, you know, your name. Date of your birth. And I also want you to then put a blank next to it, because that will indicate the date of your death. So there's four things. First name, last name, date you were born, and a blank for the date that you die. And here's what's, here's what's consistent about all of us, I think. I had no influence in really any of those things. I had no say in what my name was, my first name. I had no say in what my last name was. Those things were assigned to me. Now, I do recognize some of the house would say, listen, uh, you know, some of the ladies in the house would say, listen, I grew up and my last name was this. And then when I was got married, I took this name. And when I was divorced, I went back to this name. Or, you know, there's, there's been some changing of the names. But at the end of the day, we didn't really necessarily pick what those names were. We didn't have any influence in it. I didn't have any influence, I don't think I did, in the date that I was born. In fact, just that whole topic, and I'm getting close to my 40s, I, that still makes me uncomfortable but I have no influence in that. I don't really get to pick the day that I die. As a matter of fact, in our culture, if you hear someone who has chosen when they're going to die and they verbalize that, this is red flags to us. This is unhealthy. This is, we pick up the phone and we get help right away. If someone says, I'm going to die, I'm going to make myself die, I'm going to die at this time, all kinds of red flags go off, right? We don't have any influence in what our name is, our first name, our last name, when we're born. When we're going to die. But I want to tell you something fascinating that Jesus knew about his life that we don't know. And it comes to us, it comes to us in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. Let me read it to you. From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. I want you to see how historically unusual and controversial and difficult to hear this really was. It might help you to know this passage takes place 12 months before Jesus was to be crucified. And it says, from that day forward, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem because he knew the who... The where, the when, and the why 
of his death. You and I don't know this about our lives. We don't know the when, the where, the why, the how. We don't know that about our lives. Jesus knew what Matthew's trying to prove to us and show us, and you have to get this. Jesus knew when, where, why, and how he was going to die way before it happened. And he never ran from it, he ran to it. Do you see how unusual that is? Jesus knew his time was counting down. And I want us over these next few weeks to look specifically at the last two weeks of his life. Because here's what you need to get. Jesus knew he was in the last two weeks of his life. He knew it. Sometimes death comes to us unexpectedly. And sometimes it comes to us more expectedly. And I don't know which is more difficult. They're both difficult. But the reality is this. Jesus Christ knew in advance that he was going to die. He knew how. He knew who was going to do it. He knew when. And he knew where. A year before it happened. And if you read through the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus lived with a focused intensity because he knew his days were limited. You see, Jesus is the God-man. He's not just God. He's not just human. He's not just flesh. He's not just deity. He is God in the flesh. And so what this means is that when we look at Jesus, we see God and we see man. We see divinity, we see humanity. Pastor, that's hard to understand. No kidding. The Bible says the angels try and understand it, and they don't entirely get it. It's a mystery, but it's glorious. Jesus was both God and humanity, which means when I read the Gospels and I read about Jesus, I see both. I see him as the divine, omnipotent creator of the world. And in those moments when I look at Jesus, I almost feel like I can't relate. There's some things he does that are so godlike. I read the story, I'm like, I'm nothing like him. He goes around raising people from the dead. When people are torturing him and killing him, he says, God, please forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's not me. Someone puts the two pumps instead of three pumps in my latte, and I'm angry. I can't forgive them even for that, let alone someone who's trying to intentionally do me harm. So in some ways, we look at Jesus, and he is so much deity in that story that we say i could never be like that he is in a way an example he's somebody i aspire to that i'm not but then in other ways we can read about jesus and he's like a mirror because we see him as a human like us sometimes he's our example sometimes he's our mirror and in this story we look at jesus and while he is both we can look into jesus and say you know what I can relate because if I realized my time was ticking down, when you realize your time's getting thin, you tend to make better decisions with your time. It's like my son, I've recognized sometimes he's indecisive when he wants to drag his feet. When he doesn't want to go to bed, he goes through this whole long parade of, I need a drink, I need a snack, I need a this, I need a that. And, you know, depending on my patience level, sometimes I'm just not willing to let him drive the timetable. Two nights ago, he said, Daddy, I said, Chase, it's time to get ready for bed. Okay, can I have a snack first? Yes, you may have a small snack. We go to the cupboard. We open up the cupboard. Chase, what would you like? Hmm. What, what I like. What I like. Hmm. Chase, you know, I need you to pick something. Hmm. I'm thinking, Dad. I'm thinking. Hmm. Chase, I'm going to count to three. And by the time I get to three, you best pick out what you want. One, two, and amazingly at two and a half, he picks out, I want crackers. You see, when he realized, it wasn't until he realized that his time was ticking down that he was able to really prioritize what he wanted. We're kind of that way. 
When we realize we've got all the time in the world, or if we think we've got an indefinite amount of time, we don't really prioritize carefully. We don't make great decisions. When I was younger, uh, when I grew up in my house, we, I grew up in South Central Pennsylvania, Hershey Park was as good as it got for us. I don't know if you've ever been to Hershey Park. It is a fantastic place. The whole city smells like chocolate. And in some place, old sneakers, and I don't know why, but mostly chocolate. And um, we would go to Hershey Park, which is a theme park, an amusement park. And we would get there, and my parents would take me and my friends there. We'd get there when it opened, and we would stay there until it closed. And I will tell you, my approach to choosing what ride I wanted to ride changed as the day went on. When I got there early in the morning, generally, we'd, we'd sprint off the thing we wanted to ride on first. But pretty much between then, you know, the park closed usually around 10 o'clock. So we knew, you know, between... That first ride and the last ride, there's a whole day to meander throughout the park. We rode rides sometimes that we didn't like just because they were there. But I'm telling you, when you got down to the last hour, and mom and dad said, you've got one more hour, then the priority list of the rides got much more refined. At that point, there were certain things we didn't want to ride. We would run past the snack stands. We'd run past the games that wanted $5 to win a bear that I would never store in my car or in my house and all these different ways to get your money. And we knew exactly which rides we wanted to get to. Because what happens, we're just hardwired, I guess by God, to recognize that when we realize our time is ticking down, we really want it to count. Here's the big idea that Jesus is trying to show us that you and I need to understand in this series. The big idea is that our time on earth is limited. This is not a series about being obsessed with your death. This is not a series about being morbid and everything else. We're not going to drive this into the ground. I don't want you walking around wondering if a boulder is going to fall on your head. That's not the point of this series. Not at all. The point is we need to recognize that we're not immortal. Our time on earth is limited. It's limited. And we need to realize this and start making better decisions about how we're living our life. Don't assume we've got all this time when our time is really limited. With this in mind, the Bible teaches us to make wise decisions for how we spend our limited time. When you realize your days are counting down, you really want to make your days count. Let me read the big idea one more time. The big idea is that our time on earth is limited. With this in mind, the Bible teaches us to make wise decisions for how we spend our limited time. When you realize that your days are counting down, you really want to make your days count count so what did jesus do when there was exactly exactly to the day 14 days left you know what he did he went to a funeral why why did jesus of all the things he could have been doing two weeks before he died why did he say yes to a funeral and why did he say no to other things if you had two weeks left to live would you be going to funerals if you knew you had two weeks left to live what would you be doing what wouldn't you be doing your answer to that question tells me right now where your priorities are. John chapter 11. I'm going to read some of it to you. I just have to kind of refresh you. It's a, for those of us that have studied the Bible, this is a, a pretty familiar story. It's a story about Lazarus's funeral. But let me give you the backstory. Verses 1 through 19 tell us about, about three people, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. Lazarus, Martha, and Mary were a brother and two sisters. They lived together in a town called Bethany. They shared a home together. Jesus knew them, and the Bible says he loved them. He loved them very much. In fact, Jesus loved Lazarus, Mary, and Martha so much that the language the Bible uses to describe how he loves them is only used of three other people, Peter, James, and John. Really, you could safely say that of the people Jesus loved the dearest, that he was most intimate in his love and his connection with, it was Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. 
There is no one outside of Peter, James, and John for whom Jesus' love is described in these terms. In the very beginning of John chapter 11, you can read, read it through, the very, word comes to Jesus in John chapter 11. He finds out Lazarus is sick. He's on his deathbed. And Jesus does something unthinkable that we don't have time to talk about this morning. He finds out and he hears that Lazarus is sick. His friends are calling for him. Jesus, your best friend is sick. Will you please come? And he says, no, I will not come. He's not going to ultimately die. Let's wait here for two more days. And I want you to understand how offensive that could be. If someone's on their deathbed, and I've been on the other end of these calls as a pastor more times than I would care to admit. Pastor, brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so is at the hospital. They've got X amount of hours left, and they just want to see you so you can pray with them. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to drop everything that I have, and I'm going to get over there. What is more important than that? Let's step it up one. What if it is your best friend, your spouse, and they're on their deathbed, and they call for you? Who in their right mind would say, eh, maybe a couple days from now? Do you see? There's obviously some bigger part of this story that you and I don't see. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. In fact, the Bible says, John says, it's this crazy verse. I don't have time. Verse 5, 11 verse 5. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Although he loved them, he did not come when they asked. And it's interesting that John phrases it that way. He's almost saying to us in another way, the loving response would be to go. But Jesus did not. But him not going was not unloving. So we have to say, although he did love them, he did not show up when they asked. How many times have you thought Jesus does not love you because he did not show up when you asked? That'll be in a message I get to preach some other time. I I can't say anything more about that. But I mean, it's right there in the text. So Jesus eventually comes to Lazarus, but he's too late. Lazarus Lazarus is dead. And in verses 20 through 26 of the story, uh, Martha hears that Jesus is coming. And Martha runs out to Jesus. And she, she confronts him with this statement. If you had been here, Lazarus would not have died. If you'd been here, Lazarus would not have died. And Jesus responds with perhaps some of the famous, most famous words in the whole New Testament. What Jesus says is, is, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. She says, if you had only been here, my brother would still be alive. I know he'll eventually raise, raise again in the, in the afterlife, but for now he's dead. And Jesus says, no, I'm here. I am the resurrection. He speaks triumphantly. He speaks with confidence. He has words to speak right into her life. He confronts the flow of her heart and says, here is truth and here is facts and here I am. Seconds later, seconds later, Martha's sister Mary comes to Jesus and says word for word the same thing Martha just said. Confronts Jesus word for word, not hearing his first response. Seconds later, Mary comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. And I want you to see this. Now Jesus responds completely differently to Mary than he did to Martha. Completely differently. Same question, same issue, same challenge. Only now, 
Jesus responds differently. He's not strong. He's not triumphant. He breaks down. He cries. He cries. And all he can get out is, where is he? Two people, seconds apart, confront him with the same question. Two totally different responses. No fiction writer in their right mind would ever write a character like this. I have trouble believing the Bible is accurate. Well, who would make that up? No one would buy that. How can this person, moments apart, give two totally different responses to the same thing? With Martha, he speaks. With Mary, he's speechless. With Martha, he speaks of triumph. He's bold. He's confident. With Mary, he's weak. He trembles. He breaks down. He cries. With Martha, he confronts what she's really thinking and feeling with facts by saying, I'm the resurrection. I'm the life. I'm here. Be lifted up. With Mary, he completely enters into the flow and gets swept into the emotion of the moment. Instead of being powerful and absolutely in control, we now see a weak and trembling Jesus. His reaction makes no sense in light of what we already know about this story. It makes no sense. Because if he knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, then why is he weak and trembling and crying? If he knows that he's about to interrupt this funeral and turn it into a feast and a party, why does he go from being in control to weeping, and if you read the text, which we will in a second, to being completely enraged and angry in a matter of moments? Why? He's trying to teach us something. He's going into this funeral two weeks before his death to teach us something about our own lives. So let me give you these really quickly. What life lessons is Jesus teaching at the funeral of Jesus? Number one, learn to live for a bigger purpose. You've got to learn to live for a bigger purpose. If you're going to make the most of the time you have here and I have here on the earth, we have to learn to live for a bigger purpose. Here's what John eleven four and 5 says. Back at the beginning of the story. When Jesus initially heard that Lazarus was sick and word came to him, he says, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. What John is trying to make very, very, very clear to you and to me is that Jesus, the God-man, knew all along that Lazarus was going to get sick. He knew all along Lazarus was going to die, and he knew all along. He knew before he even went there that he, Jesus, was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knew. He knew. He knew when he spoke to Martha. He knew when he cried with Mary. And he knew when he snorted and bellowed with anger all the way from their house to Lazarus' tomb. He knew. He knew it all in advance. So why in the world did Jesus let this story fold out the way that he did. I will tell you why. It's because he lived with a bigger purpose. He knew who he was, he knew who he wasn't, and he knew what his priorities were. What he's teaching us is that you have to know your purpose and you have to let your purpose drive your priorities. You have to know your purpose. Why on earth, friend, did God put you on the earth? Do you know? Do you know who you are? Or are you still seeking and searching for it? You have to know who you are. If you're going to make the most out of your life, 
You must know your purpose. And knowing that purpose sets your priorities. Because I promise this, anybody who's got their priorities messed up, they don't know who they are and who they're supposed to be. They don't know. They're letting everybody and everything else drive your priorities and your agenda. If you feel like, well, I can't set my priorities. Why not? Because someone else is. That's backwards. You need to know who you are and who you're not. And let that understanding of who you are drive your priorities. This story, more than any other one in the New Testament about Jesus, tells us, John's telling us, this is who Jesus was. And this is what he came to do. This is who he was, and this is what he came to do. Jesus is the God-man. That's what he came to be. He knew who he was. He wasn't just God. He wasn't just human. He wasn't just flesh. He wasn't just deity. He is God in the flesh. Jesus' bigger purpose, what he's trying to show us in this story, was that his priority was to bring both truth and tears to all of us. You see these two different reactions. With Mary, he's strong. He gives her the facts. With, or with Martha, he's strong. He gives her the facts. With Mary, he cries. He enters into her feelings. We see these two, almost two different characters. And this is difficult. If you grew up, some of us grew up in church. If you grew up in a more conservative church, conservative church, we love to talk about the deity of Jesus, but not so much as humanity. We talk about the God-man in in conservative church. We talk about Jesus being, you know, the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the deliverer of everything. So he was holy and he was spotless and he never sinned. And he had the right thing to say at the right time all the time. That's what we grew up in in conservative church. In liberal churches, in more liberal-leaning churches, we talk about Jesus the human. Not so much his divinity. We talk about the Jesus who spent, he spent time with sinners and he, he ate with them and he had lunch with them and he, he had fellowship. He was merciful with people. He didn't judge them. He didn't condemn them. And we all want Jesus to be all one or all the other, but we have neither here because we have both. With Martha, with Martha, he brings a ministry of truth and of facts. He meets Martha and he says, you don't need to cry, you don't need to be upset. I am the way, I'm the resurrection, I'm the life. This is who I am. With Mary, he brings a ministry of tears. Rather than trying to quote scripture to her or beat her down or anything else, just say, hey, Mary, why don't you just hang on a few minutes? Just follow me to the grave. We'll fix this right now. He stops and he weeps with her. A A liberal Christ is a human Christ without deity and a conservative Christ is a divine Christ without humanity. Now, Here's the thing. Let me apply this real quick. Most of us have a bent one way or the other when we deal with crisis in our lives or in other people's lives. Most of us have a bent to being either the conservative approach or a liberal approach. Some of us are, and I'm kind of this way, some of us are the more conservative approach. We're fixers. People come to us with a problem. We say, hey, here's the three things that are wrong and the six things you need to do to fix it. There you go. (laughs) People who come to me with those kinds of solutions usually don't come back. Fixers. Fixers quote scripture. Fixers think that we should just sit down with everybody and tell them what's wrong with them and just give them the facts, tell them they need to repent, tell them they're sinful, tell them they're broken, and just give them an ultimatum. You need to get right right now or you're going to hell. You're moving away from Jesus. That's the conservative approach. All, all divinity, all facts, all truth, very little on the mercy and the touching of people on the other side of things. Then some of us are more wired to be the, the more feely, the feelers. We're the people who say, you know what? I don't have the answers. 
I don't have the solutions. But we'll grieve with you. We'll weep with you. We'll walk with you. We'll hug you. We'll sit with you. We'll stand with you. We'll just walk through this whole process with you. Which are you? Which comes more naturally to you? Are you more the, the, the teller of the truth and given the facts and let's just analyze and let's fix? Or are you more like, listen, that, that stuff can wait. Let's, let's just, what are you feeling right now? And how can I enter into that with you? The problem with, with being only the fixer is that we throw all kinds of solutions and facts out to people and we want to give them truth without tears and that's not helpful to anybody. On the other side of it, people who tend to be feelers never want to confront anybody about anything. We want to just say there are no answers, which is in fact an answer. And where did you get that from? We don't know why you're this way or how it's going to pan out in the future. Well, how did you even come to that conclusion? The truth of the matter is that Jesus was not either or. He was both and. And that's what you and I need to be too. Jesus goes into the situation. He knew who he was. He was the God man who came to bring a ministry of truth and of tears. And most of us gravitate to one or the other. Well, pastor, how do I get to the place I'm just a fixer. I don't want to deal with people's feelings. I've told my wife before, there are times that I could end an argument really quickly if tears would just come out. And they don't. Like, oh man, Kendra really needs me to be crying with her on this right now. I need, the tears are not coming. I've already thought of the three things that we need to do here. And I've, you know, I've got this thing going on over here and I just want to get to the place. You know, have I been empathetic? And it just doesn't come as naturally to me. And then I was there, I was like, I just, I don't ever want to confront anybody with the truth about anything. You know, the conservative people like when Jesus told the woman caught in adultery, repent and don't do it anymore. The liberal part of us, though, likes the part where he says, neither do I condemn you. And he did both. He did both. Pastor, how do I get there? Well, your only hope is Christ in you. Your only hope. Maybe, and I have to move on from this, maybe the proof of knowing that Jesus is really alive and working in me and transforming me, maybe the proof is that whichever of those things is most unnatural to me just starts to happen. Maybe the proof of Jesus being alive in my life and me being a disciple, a fully devoted follower of him, maybe the proof of Jesus being active and alive and transformative means that whichever part of that is unnatural to me that I need to be that I'm not just starts to happen. Because he's alive. And he's working in me. Maybe maturity is coming to the place where you recognize the difference between Martha and Mary. And you recognize that Martha needs facts and truth right now and tears later. But Mary needs tears right now and truth later. And maybe maturity is being able to recognize the difference between the two. Second thing you need to do is you need to learn to look for the bigger story. If you're going to make the most of the limited time that you have, you need to look for the bigger you need, to be, you need to be able to live for a bigger purpose. And secondly, you need to look for the bigger story. There is a bigger story here. There's a big enough story here. One of Jesus' closest friends died, and Jesus was invited to come and be there earlier, and he could have done something about it to prevent him dying, but he didn't. And because of the sake of time, I just have to kind of summarize and say this. In those moments where Jesus did not show up when you thought you needed him, the only possible reason why he didn't is because he's working on a bigger story. You need to think about that. I'm not unpacking that for you. You need to think about that. Because the other possibility is that he's unloving. If you thought Jesus delayed in coming to you when you needed him, the only possible reason why is because he's working on a bigger story you don't see yet. That's what happened here. 
John eleven twenty one says, Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. In your notes, sometimes even in spite of our intense prayers, God doesn't show up the way we think he should. That is not popular. That's hard to take. That's very upsetting. And it seems to stand in loggerheads with this idea that uh, I should just be able to pray all that I want to pray and God is obligated to answer my prayers if I follow the rules. If you're struggling with that, I want to invite you to listen to the podcast from last week's sermon, the finest exposition on the parable of the two sons I've ever heard in my entire life. I've thought about it all week. I'm still, I'm thinking about it while I'm preaching, which is making it hard for me to preach this morning, but I would invite you. I didn't preach it. Those of you that weren't here, Pastor Stewart preached it. You're like, man, he is very arrogant talking about his own preaching that way. I'm not. But if you struggle in that arena of your life, I would invite you to go back and listen to that message multiple times over. Um, It's a transformative message. But really, what's the bigger story here? What, for what possible reason did Jesus not show up and stop this whole thing before Lazarus died? What's the bigger story here? I'll tell you this. The bigger story was not in the fact, John eleven thirty five 35, that Jesus wept. The bigger story is, is what was in Jesus' rage. If you read this story, you will see Jesus got really angry. That angry that the word that's used to describe how angry he got is only used a couple other times in Bible and always of animals. You see, the weeping of Jesus tells us who he is, but the rage of Jesus tells us what he came to do. This was the bigger story here. What made Jesus so angry? You see it in John John 11, it says this, John eleven thirty five. when Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him and he was deeply troubled. A deep anger welled up inside Jesus. Why do we skip that part when we come to this story? We don't want to think about Jesus being angry when he's watching other people cry. And so since it makes us uncomfortable, we skip over it. But it's here and we need to talk about it because I will tell you, I have to cut to the chase. I'll tell you what he's not mad at. He's not mad at the people who are crying. Mm-mm. He's also not mad at himself. And if I had time this morning, there are volumes of theology in the fact that when Jesus dealt with the death of his friend, he got angry, but not at himself. Jesus said over and over and over, I am God. I'm God. He and I are one. Someone dies and he's not mad at God. Do you hear this? How many times has someone died in your life and you got mad at God? Jesus deals with death and he gets so angry that the Bible says he went snorting and bellowing with anger all the way to the grave. Who or what was he mad at? That's the bigger story here. The story is that his friend died and Jesus was invited to come there and he didn't come. He shows up, he shows up quote unquote late, but really right on time. And the big story is that he got angry, but who or what was he mad at? He was not mad at himself. He was not mad at the people who are weeping and wailing. And there's a whole lot there, and I'll just skip that for today. He's mad at what? You know what he's mad at? Here's what I think. He's looking at the faces of the people who are devastated by death. He's looking at all these people grieving. And he probably wasn't even just weeping over Lazarus and Mary and Martha because he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He wouldn't have been, that emotion wouldn't have sustained him getting that upset about them. I believe in that moment he recognized, and in the, he sees every one of you and I who have ever wept at a casket or at a funeral. And he sees the impact of death on humanity and it makes him angry. And what does that tell me? Death was never Jesus' idea. He's mad at death. 
And he's mad at it because it was not his design. It was not his idea. God never intended us to die. Never. You have to understand this. He never intended, he never intended for you to suffer injustice or poverty or all these other types of things or suffering. He only ever intended us to be in relationship with him. So where does all this stuff come from? You know where it comes from? It's a consequence of your sin and my sin. That's where death comes from. That's where suffering comes from. That's where injustice comes from. And Jesus is so enraged at death that he says, where is he? And weeping and angry. Have you ever done both at the same time? He is. Weeping and angry, he leads everybody to the tomb of Lazarus. And you can read the rest of the story, what happens. But you know why he goes there? He, the Bible, the language used there is a language used of when a fighter approaches his foe. Snorting and bellowing. You go watch old WWF, World Wrestling Federation videos from the 80s, and you see all the, the wrestlers, the actors coming in, and they're, they're walking down the ring, and they're pointing here and there and everything else. They are walking with the swagger and the confidence and the anger of the foe they're going to face. That's what the Bible says Jesus is doing all the way to the tomb. He's not mad at himself. He's not mad at the people that are crying. He's angry and enraged at death because he and death are about to go to battle. Two weeks before he goes to the cross, Jesus strikes the first blow at death. Well, pastor, I thought Jesus fought death when he went to the cross. Yes and no. He started the fight here. Because he's going the whole way to the tomb. And here's what he knows. Here's the bigger story. It's what happens after the story. He knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And he knows what's going to happen in verse 45. Many of the people who were with Mary believed in Jesus when they saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. But listen to this. But some of the people who saw what Jesus did went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Listen, then, then, meaning after Jesus did this, after he rose Lazarus from the dead, at that point, two weeks before Jesus was to die, the leading priests and Pharisees called the Sanhedrin together. What are we going to do? They asked each other. This man certainly performs many miraculous signs. If we allow him to go on like this, soon everyone will believe in him, and the Roman army will come and destroy both our temple and our nation. Caiaphas, who was high priest at the time, said, you don't realize what you're talking about. You don't realize that it's better for you that one man should die for the people than the whole nation be destroyed. He didn't say this on his own. His high priest at the time, he was led to prophesy that Jesus would die for the entire nation, and not only for the entire nation, but for all the people of the world. So from that time on, the Jewish leaders began to plot Jesus' death. Do you understand why Jesus went to the funeral? Here's a bigger story. Jesus came for one reason and one reason only, to die. That's why he came. And at Lazarus' funeral, he's so ticked off at death because he realizes that what he needs to do in raising Lazarus from the dead, if he's going to bring Lazarus back from the dead, he's guaranteeing his own death. The only way he can ever interrupt any of our funerals ever is if he defeats death and the first strike at death happens at Lazarus' funeral. Because when if that's finally the thing that forces his enemy's hands, they say, enough is enough, let's kill him. He knows all that when he goes to the tomb. It's almost as if death is talking to him and saying, if you touch me, I'll touch you. And Jesus says, bring it on. If you touch me, we've got Lazarus. If you touch me, I'm coming for you next. And he says, come on, that's what I came here to do. Jesus goes to the funeral because he knows it's time. His enemies need to be, have their hand forced, and he does. He brings Lazarus back from the dead, and in so doing, he guarantees that two weeks from that day, he will die himself. You have to learn to look 
for the bigger story. Finally, you need to learn to ask the bigger questions. Learn to answer the bigger questions. If you're going to make the most out of your life, you have to learn to answer the bigger questions. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die, he says to Martha. Do you believe this, Martha? That's the biggest question in the whole story. Yes, Lord, she told him. I've always believed you're the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who's come in the world, the one who's come in the world from God. The smaller questions in this story seem big to the people in the story. You and I ask God a lot of questions that we think are the biggest questions. Why do I suffer financially? Why have I had my heart broken? Why is my family dysfunctional? Why did you take this person from me? Why did you take my child from me? Why can't we have children? Why can't I find the right person to spend the rest of my life with? Those are big questions to us. I don't mean to suggest that they're inconsequential to God, but you understand there are questions and there are big questions and there are the bigger questions. And if you're going to make the most out of your life, you have to learn to start answering the bigger questions because you might get a whole lot of other answers that in the end of time don't really amount to much. But the biggest of all the questions in the whole story, and there were a lot of them, why didn't you come when we called for you, Jesus? If you wanted to, you could have prevented Lazarus from dying. You could have prevented us from suffering. You could have snapped your fingers, Jesus, and we wouldn't have grieved. We wouldn't have suffered. Lazarus would still be alive. Why? He said, the biggest question is, do you believe in me, Martha? Basically, what he's saying to her is, do you know who I am? Do you believe in me? And what are you going to do with that? Those are the biggest questions in the whole story. And I'm asking you this morning, what are the biggest questions? Do you believe Jesus is the Messiah? Do you believe you need him? Do you believe your life should adopt his priorities? Do you believe you should follow the will of God? Do you believe those things? Those are the biggest questions. But most of us get hung up on these things. Why do we have to have suffering? Why do life have to be miserable? Here's the problem. We live in a world filled with suffering and injustice and problems. Here's the cruel reality of it. The more you love, the more you suffer. The more you love somebody, the more you suffer. The more you love God, you will suffer. You'll suffer when you tell the truth instead of lie to get out of something. You'll suffer when you confront instead of avoid. You will suffer. The more you love, the more you suffer. If you want to avoid pain and you want to avoid having your heart broken, then don't love anything. You get mad at C.S. Lewis. That's his thing. <laughs> but that's the truth. The more you love God and obey God, the more you'll suffer. It's proven. That, well, I don't know if I believe it. It is proven by the fact that the person who, the most loving human being who ever walked the face of this earth suffered the most. Well, pastor, the big question really is, is, is <laughs> the big question really is this. Why, if Jesus had the ability to snap his fingers and just end all the suffering and end all death, why didn't he do it? It's a great question. And I'll close with that because I can kind of fold the, the biggest question and that question into the same answer. Here's why. You want to know the truth? The truth is, yes, Jesus could have showed up two days earlier and ended it all. He could have, made, he could have healed Lazarus and make sure he didn't die. Could Jesus snap his fingers and end all death and all suffering? Yes. Does he have the power to? Sure. Snap his fingers, end it all. But if he did that, he'd have to get rid of you and me too. Because we're the root of all of it. So we say we want Jesus to end all death and all suffering. Okay, well then you and I go with it. 
the only way, the only way Jesus could ever end death and suffering, the only way that God himself could end all of that without getting rid of us is he had to come to earth and be part of all of it and suffer himself. And in the sacrifice and in the suffering, he redeems all of us. And he buys us back. So that's my question for you. Do you see that you need Jesus? Do you see that you need the God-man? We are all on a spiritual road of some sort. And I hope that there, I hope that there are some this morning that say, no, Pastor, I'm not on a spiritual road. I hope that there are some of you here. Jesus says, you're either on the way, the, the, the straight and narrow way to heaven, or you're on the wide and broad path to hell. You're on one of two roads. And we're all on it. Well, I'm not a religious type. I don't believe in all that. I'm not on a spiritual road. No, you are on one. You have faith. No, I don't. Yeah, you do. You have faith that there is no God. You have faith about the afterlife that there isn't one or that if it is, it's a different version than what Jesus tells about that is. You have faith. You're putting all of your eggs and you're hedging all of your bets around you being right. But Jesus says, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. I'm your access to God. I give you the access to the straight and to the narrow way. That takes faith too. So, you know, you either have faith that you're right, that there is none of this other stuff, and that he who dies with the most toys wins. Or you have faith to believe that there is Jesus, the God-man, who came as God in the flesh to us. Judaism and Islam say that God would never come in the flesh. Hinduism and Buddhism say that God comes a lot of times in the flesh. Only Christianity says that Jesus Christ came not as the reincarnation but as the incarnation. As the one who would sacrifice and suffer and die. That's the biggest question. That's the biggest question. So, in conclusion, when you realize that your time is limited, do like Jesus said. Don't get frantic. Don't get frantic. Get focused. Jesus didn't go around panicking. He got focused. So who are you? Really, who are you? Why are you here? Jesus knew who he was. He was the God-man. He knew why he was here. He was here to die. He was here to die as a sacrifice and a ransom for all of our sins and to raise from the dead and to make life again for us. That's why he went to a funeral two weeks before he died. There is a story about raising Lazarus from the dead, but there is a bigger story about him going to battle with death to defeat death so that you and I could live again. As our worship team comes back, let's bow our heads and let's pray together this morning. Just a moment, we're going to sing a song confessing our need for God, confessing our need for Jesus. As all heads are being bowed and every eye is closed, our prayer team's coming forward. I know we started a few minutes late this morning, so I'm just recovering those six or seven minutes here at the end. Five minutes from now, six minutes from now, we'll dismiss the service. But I want you to just hold steady for just a moment. This is extremely important. Have you submitted control of your life to Jesus Christ? Have you put your faith in him? Where you sit right now, are your priorities in your life ordered the way that the Father would want them to be ordered? Or are you saying on the one hand, I confess Jesus as my Lord and I want the assurance of salvation, but I'm still living life by what feels right to me. Friend, Jesus teaches us 
that there will be many people who think that they are Christians who in fact are not. And they will be surprised at the judgment day when they hear, even though they say, Lord, Lord, I've done great things. I cried during worship. I volunteered and served on a ministry team. I have spiritual gifts in my life. I say, but I never knew you. Why? Because he says, only those who know me and do the will of my father are those who are really authentically believers. Friend, I just want you, and I realize when I say that, beads of sweat pop out on a lot of our brows. I'm not trying to scare you. I want you to understand our time is limited, and we need to make wise decisions about the way that we live our lives. And this morning, if there's anything in your life that you're hesitant about, when it comes to your relationship with Jesus, that's the most important thing. Who do you say that he is, and what are you going to do about it? With every head bowed, every eye closed, I want to lead us in a prayer this morning. It's a prayer of confession, of repentance. It's a prayer of salvation that is the starting point for any real relationship with God, and it only comes through Jesus Christ. It's a prayer that as I lead it, you can pray it right after me, right in your seat. You can just say it right along with me. You can repeat those words right after me in your seat. I can't pray it for you. You have to pray it for yourself. But it's a prayer of something very simply like this. Jesus, I believe you are the God-man. You are the Son of God. Co-equal with your Father. But you came to earth. You became a man. You became weak. You lived a sinless life and you died in my place, but you didn't stay dead. You defeated death. And just like Lazarus rose from the grave, you rose from the grave. And today you're alive in heaven. I need you. I will only ever be completely healed and whole if I have both your truth and your tears ministering to me. I submit control of my life to you. And I will live my life as you lead me. I will follow you. You are my king. You are my Lord. In your name I pray. Amen.